And so, yeah, today we're going to be finishing up our short five-week marriage series. I'm excited that next week we'll be jumping back just into our normal rhythms and be back in the book of Luke, uh, the latter part of chapter 14, talking about the cost of discipleship. So I'm looking forward to that. But today we're going to be finishing up this series talking about two things that are largely ignored uh, in the church as it relates to marriage for different reasons. One is ignored a lot of times just out of a, a wrong it shouldn't be, but just kind of out of embarrassment. And so it's in a lot of ways kind of like if there was a, a, a tribe on the Nile River and for whatever reason in that culture, it was taboo to talk about crocodiles. And so you go to this village and you see people in the village who, you know, are walking around with huge limps, are walking around with scars, are walking around... Um, missing limbs, and they've just been maimed and, and hurt uh, and scarred, all because they, the tribe would not talk about the, the glories and the life of the river, and they also wouldn't talk about the dangers of the crocodiles that are in the river. And that's the way the church treats sex a lot of times. We won't talk about it, and so people are walking around maimed and confused and hurt, dragging scars, Because the church refuses to talk about it. And so that's one of the things that we're going to talk about today that's largely ignored. The other thing that we're going to talk about, and it's very practical, very just kind of almost Captain Obvious in a lot of ways. And that's that marriage is all about friendship. And that friendship is a gift in marriage, just as sex is a gift. And they're to be received these ways. And so we're going to talk about both of those things, and both of them flow out of Genesis 2.24 that we've talked about every single week. Just kind of God's blueprint for marriage. That we are to leave our mothers and our fathers, we're to hold fast or cleave to our spouse, and that we are to become one flesh. And that one flesh union has got a lot of connotations. We've talked about it. It's got, you know, literal one flesh. And we'll get into that today. And, and, and metaphorical. All right. But two of the things that it at least, you know, um, points to is unity as, and one flesh as it relates to friendship. And as it relates to sex. As it relates to being friends and as it relates to being lovers. And so um, just kind of the way we're going to frame the sermon And the two kind of big hooks to give you to to, uh, take some notes on is going to be the gift of friendship in marriage. And then secondly, we'll talk about the gift of sex in marriage. And so that's kind of how this is going to break down uh, this morning. If you want to take some notes with that, I put a bunch of resources uh, down at the bottom. I'd encourage you to pick some of those up. Um, They'll all be very, very, very Helpful to you. And so the gift of friendship and marriage, again, just very captain obvious here. The, the key to marriage, a God glorifying, good, uh, fun, exciting, fulfilling marriage is friendship. And marriage starts that way a lot of times. I know it did for Sarah and I. We were, we were friends for three years, really good friends for two years before I convinced her to dump her boyfriend and start dating me. That's a whole nother story. Who was also my roommate. No, no, no. It's not as bad as it sounds. It's, it's, I promise. It was a, it was, that sounded really bad. It wasn't. <laughs> promise. 
promise. It's a, lot, it's a long story, but it's a good story. But a lot of times we start out that way. We start out as friends, all right, in this journey of friendship, but then it gets off course as friends become business partners trying to pay the bills, parents trying to raise kids, cab drivers trying to shuttle you know, family members all over the place, caregivers trying to tend to aging parents, and event planners trying to organize everything from birthdays to holidays to vacations. And all this, we get busy in all of these things, and, and, but somewhere we need to just kind of step back from that and call a time out and do some self-assessment and some self-examination and, and, and realize that the key to doing all of those things, which need to be done, is to first and always be working on the friendship. Because the rest of marriage will take care of itself. It will all come together and it will come together much more happily and much more easily when you're doing it with your friend. And so to work first on that key of friendship. And countless sociology studies back this up. But even more important than sociology studies is what the scripture says. And in the Song of Solomon, the wife is going through this long description of all these things that her husband is to her, but she sums it up at the very end in chapter 5, verse 16, like this. This is my beloved, and this is my friend. This is my beloved, and this is my friend. This is what God wants for our marriage. This is what He wants for our marriages. Again, we've talked about so much our marriages exist to reflect the love that Christ has for the church. And what is one of the terms that Christ calls the redeemed? He, he calls us his bride, but he calls us his friend. You no longer serve you. Now I call you friends. Like we're to be friends. And it only takes one spouse to be friendly, but it does take both spouses to be friends. It takes both spouses. And when that happens... Love and laughter ever increasingly mark your marriage. When you both do that. And so we want to pursue that. This is what God wants. This is, you know, it gives him glory. It's good for us as well. And so we want to pursue this. The question is, how do we pursue this? How do we pursue becoming a better friend toward our spouse? Well, it is not by trying to get them to be a better friend. It is by you ferociously striving to be a better friend. And part of that striving, I think, is understanding, and I'm going to broad brush here. This is going to be, you know, and I know this doesn't fit exactly in all circumstances, but very broad brush. Part of that's seeking to understand how men and women often engage in friendship a little bit differently. I came across two really good descriptions this week uh, that I think are helpful that I'm going to share with you this morning, just kind of describing some very common friendships. And so one of them, the first one I want to talk to you about, is a shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder friendship. And this is where you work together to accomplish something. All right? It's a friendship that's revolved and built around a shared activity of some kind. So that's a shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder friendship. The other one is a face-to-face -face friendship which seeks a lot of FaceTime, a lot of conversation, and, and not of the trivial kind, but of, of depth. And so here comes my, my broad brush. Men most commonly have shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder friendships. All right, Something that's built around shared activity. Like as I think about my own life and look back when I was a kid, 
you know, my friendships were built around those guys that played baseball and basketball and football with me. When I got into college, it was built around those guys who ran track and cross country with me. When I went into the working world prior to going into ministry, it was built around those folks that I worked with. We had a shared activity. We had something in common. We were seeking to accomplish something, and our friendship was kind of built around that. And I had a couple of face-to-face, but the vast majority were those kind. And, and even today, like when I get together with my best friend besides Sarah, and I mean, she's undoubtedly my best friend. I, if I'm going to be doing anything at all, the most boring thing in the world, I want to do that with Sarah. The most exciting thing in the world, I want to do that with Sarah. But if I'm going to do something with someone else besides her, my best friend besides Sarah is a guy named Dan. All right, We've been best friends since... Uh, Ninth grade, college roommates for five years. Yes, five years. That took a few of you to pick up on a little bit. But if whenever he and I get together today, we don't get together for coffee. We don't get together. To, we do something. Whether that's hiking or we're building something, it's built around doing something. It's just kind of natural and normal to male wiring. Shoulder-to-shoulder friendships. All right? Ladies, on the other hand, and again, broad brush here, but a lot of times it's more of a face-to-face relationship that, that they enjoy that's built on conversation and knowing one another. And that's why ladies, a lot of times, will talk with one another and they'll, they'll share a little bit deeper than, than men will. And that's natural and normal. And so as men and women, we've got to learn to in, enter one another's world as it relates to that. And so just real practically, wives... To be a good friend, learn to spend some time with your husband in a shared activity. All right, something that he enjoys. So if, he, if he's really into a sports team, learn to be into that sports team. Like, enthusiastically, not sarcastically. All right, he'll, he'll, he'll love that. If he's into doing projects, hang out with him. Ask how you can help and praise him for what he's doing. If he likes to unwind fishing or golfing or, or hunting or playing chess or bird watching or visiting arts, whatever it may be, try to learn to appreciate and jump in with those activities like he does. And here's what I mean by that. Don't try to co-op that time that's unwinding for him and seek to go into a deep conversation at that moment. Okay, there's a time for that, but here you're trying to love him, not get loved. Men, on the other side, you, you need to learn how to enter into deep, com- meaningful conversations. Doesn't come naturally to many of us, especially without trying to fix the problem. So, like Sarah, she starts telling me something, she starts telling me about her day. Well, here's what you need to do. Next. That's how I want to approach this. I fix that. Let's go to the next thing. But that's me being a fixer, not me being a friend. Again, it's not me trying to understand how I want it. It's trying to understand how she wants it. That's how we're to approach things. Not thinking about ourselves, considering one another more important than ourselves, right? It's a biblical principle, and it's huge in marriage. Huge. And so, guys, we've got to learn how to kind of enter into this and ask questions. Put the phone down. Put the device away. Like I've talked about before, listen with your face. Ask questions. Try to draw her out. That doesn't come natural to me. But that's seeking to love her as she wants to be loved, not as as how I want to love her. And she'll feel loved as you learn to -to face-to-face converse. 
And again, this is broad brush, but the big point I want you to take away from this is you've got to learn how to be a friend to your spouse. How do they enjoy friendship? And then enter into that. Even if it's contrary to the way you were brought up, the way you've done things. Well, you love them, not those things, not your background. The importance of friendship in marriage cannot be overstated. And one guy put it like this, happy marriages are based on deep friendship. By this, I mean a mutual respect for and enjoyment of each other's company. These couples tend to know each other in intimately. They're well-versed in each other's likes, dislikes, personality quirks. We've all got them. Hopes and dreams. They have an abiding regard for each other and express this fondness not just in the big ways, but in little ways, day in and day out. And so marriage is all about friendship. And it is a gift to be married to your best friend. And so pursue that. Right? Pursue that in obedience to God and for your own good. Pursue that. And I know for those of you who are married, we're, we're not all, all there. Okay, we've, you know, I'm, I'm describing the ideal here. And I know that for some of us, our marriages are far from that. But even in that case, Romans 12 says, insofar as it depends on you, seek to live at peace with all people. And so kind of taking that, insofar as it depends on you, seek to be a friend to your spouse. Knowing that where the ideal is lacking, God gives grace. But we pursue His ideal. All right, We pursue that. That's, that's the gift of friendship. But as I said, the other often ignored in the church aspect of marriage is sex. And because of that, sex is often approached either as a God or as gross when in actuality it's a gift. In Romans 1, thinking of it as, as a God, Romans 1 tells us that people will either worship God as creator all right, of all things and enjoy His creation, including our bodies, including sex, or we will worship creation. And as part of worshiping creation, it always seems to go sexual outside of the bounds of what God has given us in marriage. A heterosexual, one man, one woman, for life, covenantal, monogamous marriage. And so I'll just read a little bit of Romans chapter 1 to you. You can, you can just listen to it. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Now he's going to describe just general revelation, how we can kind of know God exists in nature. All right, special revelations given to us in his word where we can know how who he is and what he is, but General revelations, what we can see here, here it is for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse for although the new God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened, claiming to be wise. They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God. Listen to this. And exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, 
to dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. For the women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves a due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind so that what ought not to be to do what ought not to be done. They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decrees that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but give approval to those who practice them. And so a lot of times what Christians will do is they'll, they'll pick that up and they'll just talk just about homosexuality out of that. Did you hear all the things? Disobedient to parents. Uh, all, all the, it's, it's just sin they're talking about. When we worship creation, we, we go away from God. We, we stop worshiping the creator. We worship creation and we, our minds are literally warped. And all sex outside of marriage, all of it, of any kind, all of it is, is out of bounds, according to God's word. We'll come back to that in a minute. But the whole point here is a lot of times we just turn sex into a God and we worship that. It consumes our thoughts. It consumes our lives. It consumes our hearts. It consumes our pursuits. And so what's happened in the church long, largely in response to this wrong view over here of sex as a God is that to avoid that, we've, we've overcorrected, right? And we've come over here to largely view, historically view sex as gross. And I'm not saying that you do. I'm giving you a little bit of history here and how this is rolled out. That we've overcorrected. And you know when you're driving a car, if you overcorrect, you're going to put the car in the ditch. And that's what's happened with the church a lot. We've overcorrected to this, and so we've wound up putting, you know, regarding sex as gross, getting in the ditch as it relates to how we understand sex. That it's just gross. Some of you were taught this growing up. It's gross. It's to be avoided. It's basically just a necessary evil so that we don't go extinct. But aside from that, we want to stay away from that. Anything thought historically, anything passionate, anything that's exciting, sexual pleasure, pleasure, all of that, that's wicked, that's evil. We want to stay away from there. This was taught. And so because of that, people literally literally invented ways to read the highly erotic book Song of Solomon in a way that God never intended. They created ways to, to read that book. I mean, it was a book that little Jewish boys and girls were not allowed to read because of how provocative it is until like after their bar mitzvah, after they got to 13. But people overcorrected, all right, and they thought God could not possibly write a book like that. That could not possibly be scripture. And so they invented all kind of ways to read the book as an allegory. Even creating little kid songs out of it. Like, his banner over me is love, if you've ever 
heard that little kid song. Which is taken from chapter 2, verse 4, which is preceded immediately by perhaps the most provocative verse in the entire book. Don't sing that song about Jesus. Lord help us. And so they basically sought to change the meaning of God's word to fit their defunct worldview of all sex as evil. And so for all the bad rap that people throw at the Puritans, falsely I might add, it was the Puritans that began to help us reclaim the idea that sex as God intended is a good thing inside of marriage. Pleasure is a good thing inside of marriage. All right? But stepping away from history, let's, let's look at the Bible on this. And so here's what I want to do. I want to build out a sentence for you. We've done this with marriage before. Just build out a sentence for you and we'll add a little phrase to it as we go along to help us kind of summarize some of the Bible's teaching on sex. And so the first part of that sentence, we're going to start it like this. Sex is a gift designed and created by God. And so if you want to write this sentence down, that's going to be the first part. Sex is a gift designed and created by God. And so Genesis chapter 1. Sex is a gift designed and created by God. Genesis chapter 1, verse 27. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Chapter 2, verse 24, this is a verse we've camped out on so much. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. And so sex is a gift designed and created by God. And so if, if God created sex and sexuality in his own, quoting his own words, very good creation, Right? If God created sex and sexuality in that way, then by its very nature, how are we to view it? As very good. It is a gift. It's a gift from God. I mean, when our first parents, Adam and Eve, consummated their covenant, God was not sitting up there shocked. Right? Uh, uh, feeling just distraught. What is going on? What are they doing? No, He, he created their bodies for sex. Our anatomy bears this out. And so the reason that sex is fun and pleasurable and wonderful is because God created that way, created it that way out of his goodness. For us to steward and enjoy and to tie the hearts of married couples together in a way that nothing else can. Which brings us to the second part of our sentence. Sex is a gift designed and created by God with particular purposes, two of which are pleasure and connection. Okay? With particular purposes, two of which are pleasure and connection. Now, to be sure, sex is inherently about procreation. Be fruitful and multiply. Okay, he wants us to fill the world with worshipers of him. In fact, Genesis 1, 27 is really the first great commission that you find in all of Scripture. We're to make disciples. Go into the world and make disciples, right? 
In Matthew chapter 28, we'll hear this is the same thing. Be fruitful and multiply. Fill, fill the world with worshipers. Fill the word with, world with disciples. So it's inherently about procreation. But it's not just about procreation. It's about pleasure and connection as well. And I can take you to loads of places in the Bible to show you this. But let me just read to you one section of the Song of Solomon. All right, The whole book is laced with things like I'm about to read to you. But I'm just going to read one section. Song of Solomon, chapter 7. All right, if you want to follow along, it's page 563 in the Bibles that are around you. Song of Solomon, chapter 7. And as I read this, if you start to get nervous and squirm, I'm reading the Bible. Back off. Just playing with you. Song of Solomon, chapter 7. <clears throat> How beautiful are your feet and sandals, O noble daughter. Your rounded thighs are like jewels, the work of a master hand. Your navel is a rounded bowl that never lacks mixed wine. Your belly is a heap of wheat encircled with lilies. Now, I want to stop right here and help my brothers out real quick. If you think, man, I'm going to be romantic and all biblical and I'm going to just start quoting. If you call her thighs rounded or that her belly is a heap of wheat, it is not going to go well for you. All right, we got this is an agrarian culture. Contextualize, all right, contextualize that. Don't go there. Learn to praise her. That's a good thing to learn here, but not like a belly being a heap of wheat. Let's keep going. Verse 3. Your two breasts are like fawns, twins of a gazelle. Your neck is like an ivory tower. Your eyes are like pools in Heshbon by the gate of Beth Rabim. Your nose is like a tower of Lebanon, which looks towards Damascus. Your head crowns you like caramel, and your flowing locks are like purple. A king is held captive in the tresses. How beautiful and pleasant you are, O loved one, with all your delights. Your stature is like a palm tree, and your breasts are like clusters. I say I will climb the palm tree and lay hold of its fruit. Am I turning red yet? Oh, may your breasts be like clusters of the vine and the scent of your breath like apples and your mouth like the best wine. It goes down smoothly for my beloved, gliding over lips and teeth. I am my beloved's and his desire is for me. I'll just go ahead and stop for now. But here's what I want you to see. That's in the Bible. That's in the Bible. God's a good father who gave the good gift of sex for pleasure as it relates to, and, and connection as it relates to marriage. He made our bodies very good with male and female parts and pleasures. God did that. And so don't think God doesn't understand sex. He doesn't understand it. Man, he created it. He's the expert on it. You don't need Dr. Phil. Or whoever else might be claiming to be something. You need, what, is, what does God say about it? And so understand very well, God is pro-sex, okay? 
He's all for it. He created. And so understand his instructions about sex. He's not ever trying to rob us of experiences or joys that we might think we might have. He's trying to keep us from those things. And he's trying to lead us into joy and passion and excitement and fun. And so when God says sex works this way and not this way. That's not him robbing That's Him leading and guiding you to joy in life. And so one of the reasons that sex, all sex outside of marriage, is out of bounds, one of the reasons is the same reason that sex is so important in marriage, where where health concerns allow. I understand sometimes it's not possible, but where health concerns allow, here's why it's so important in marriage and why it's so destructive outside. And it's because it it ties two people together. It ties two people together. And so the hookup culture that existed on the college that I went to exists in, you know, just in culture in general. And today it's leaving a wake of devastation behind because sex goes well beyond the physical act. It's it's physical, absolutely, but it's not just that. It's more than that. The Bible says that sex in in sex, two people become one flesh. And that's physical and that's more than physical. The Hebrew word for this, this marital connective sex, the Hebrew word is dode. And it means a mingling of souls. Matt Chandler wrote a great book by that title. I listed it in your resources. But that's what sex is. It it mingles you with another person. Like at the soul, at the heart level, at a at a level that that it's not just physical. It's more than that. And and so it's this mingling and, and it gives you a connection that's different than any other human connection. And so the whole idea of casual sex or even in a relationship, but you're not just you're not married yet. You're putting your heart, you're putting your mind, you're putting your psyche at, at risk. And just think logically with me for, for just a minute. Is casual sex anything other than teaching men and women to view one another, not as persons, but as objects for pleasure? It's, that's what it's teaching. Is it leading to greater respect between the two genders? I mean, is chivalry on the rise? Or is powerful men viewing women as objects that they can grab and grope and get away with it on the rise? And so it's problematic all the way around. It's more than just physical. That's why Paul in 1 Corinthians 6 verse 15 says this. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? We could substitute different words for prostitute here. For as it is written, the two will become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body. Sexual, but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. 
is you need to hear that there. For all the sins that we can get involved in, there's one that's sinning against our own body that's called out in that way. That cuts deeply in our emotions and in our heart and in our mind. And it's sexual immorality, which is anything outside of biblical marriage. And even, some, even if you're married, there's still a few things that are out of bounds. We'll get to that in a minute. So I want you to hear that. That's kind of the, the negative way of stating it. But when you flip it around and read what Paul's saying here positively, what he just said is that God's plan for sex is far, far greater than anything that the world offers, than anything that the world defines. It's far greater. And so summarizing a little bit out of Chandler's book, when God, like what he has in mind through the physical act of sex, is that within a covenant relationship, all right, and by that, just talking like you are committed, not not I kind of feel things about you, but I'm committed to you regardless of anything, whether I feel it or whether I not feel it. I'm in. I'm not going anywhere. I'm with you. You are mine. All right. Within the confines of, of a deep and abiding friendship. In mutual submission to God Almighty. And the man and the woman come together spiritually, emotionally and physically like that's. That's what sex is. And when that happens, the physical side of pleasure takes care of itself. Satisfaction will happen. And so what this means then is that if we treat sex just as another physical act, like jumping or running, we're just going to do this. You're doing things with your soul that you may not even realize. Things that can leave scars, but things that God can redeem. All right, I want to make sure we're clear about all that. Or maybe you feel it deep down. You know it in your gut, but you suppress it. But you're allowing damage to happen to yourself. This is why God gives good instruction on sex. He's saying, I'm for it. It's awesome. Have fun in this way. Over here, like over here, it's dynamic. Over here, it's dynamite. It'll blow up. And so we've said sex is a gift designed and created by God with particular purposes, two of which are pleasure and connection, and now adding to that within appropriate boundaries. Okay? Sex is a gift designed and created by God with particular purposes, two of which are pleasure and connection within appropriate boundaries. And so look at Proverbs chapter 5. Right in the middle of the Bible. Proverbs chapter 5. Same guy that wrote Song of Solomon. Solomon wrote the Proverbs, most of them at least. Chapter 5, verse 15. All right, we're talking within appropriate boundaries. Here's what he says. Drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets? He's talking about sex. Let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth. A lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breasts fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? And so we're talking here about you know, what is out of bounds. It is to be within boundaries. And again, within marriage, it's dynamic. But outside, it's dynamite. 
And so adultery, what he's specifically you know, getting at here, is out of bounds. Pornography is out of bounds. You're like, well, we watch it together as a married couple. It's out of bounds. You're bringing someone else into your home. Right? Bringing a literal person into that's out of bounds. Premarital sex, extramarital sex, all these things are out of bounds. And let me camp out just real quick. Every single, when you got a real, every single one of us in this room is a sexual sinner. There's not one of us in here who is not. Every single one of us. You're like, no, 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 not me, not me, not me. Have you ever lusted? Jesus says that's like committing adultery. Every single one of us is a sexual. So there's no finger pointing. There's no, I'm better. No, no, no. All there is is repentance. And Jesus can take all that's been broken and He can patch your heart up. He can, he can heal your heart. He can make you, you are a new creation in Christ and you're being made new every single day. He lavishes grace. He lavishes forgiveness. And he's the one who lived perfectly for you. We've blown it. And he did it. He lived perfectly sexually. Tempted in all ways, the Bible says, yet without sin. Perfect life. And then died for us. For our sexual sin. So we could be redeemed. So we could be made new. So we could have eternal life. So we could have fellowship and be adopted by the Father and part of His family. Given eternal life. Made new. And so we need to have grace towards one another. Always. It's okay to not be okay. All right? We love one another enough to not let us stay that way, but it's okay to not be okay. But we also need to understand God's boundaries. Sex is for marriage. Like when I talk with my daughters, all right, my two oldest, eight, no, no, I'm terrible, 10 and 12. They, they know what sex is. We want them to know from us before they find out at school. So we had those conversations usually around like age seven. So they know what sex is. And they understand what we teach them is within marriage, even while they're like, oh gosh, that's disgusting. And just, Sarah has that conversation. Husbands, if you have sons, you have that conversation. If you have daughters, ladies, you have that conversation. Right? I mean, I, I'll talk with my girls. If they have a question, they come home asking, what is this word? Okay. And, and we deal with it. All right? And I'll answer that question straightforward for them. But what we teach them is sex is for marriage. Inside of marriage, it's great. Don't, don't think it's dirty. In, inside of marriage, it's great. Outside of marriage, it's dangerous. That's what we teach. And so sex is for marriage. Everything else is outside of bounds. So Hebrews 13.4, we want to make sure that the marriage bed is undefiled. Right? But as we're talking about these boundaries, we need to understand also that in marriage, God commands us, as long as health is not an issue here, He commands us to make love to our spouse. Like deprivation of sex in the marriage, unless because of health concerns, is out of bounds as well. It's out of bounds. So listen to 1 Corinthians 7. 
verse 3. The husband should give to his wife her conjugal rights, and likewise the wife to her husband. For the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Do not deprive one another, except perhaps by agreement for a limited time, that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan may not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. The Bible presupposes and assumes that we're going to struggle with sexual sin. And so, denial of sex. Listen, sex is not a weapon. It's not a weapon that you are to use. All right, That's wicked. It's not a weapon, it's a gift. And so the only time to deny one another is verse 5, by agreement, for a limited time, that we may devote ourselves to prayer. And so just real practically, what this is saying, especially as it pertains to verse 4, for the wife does not have authority over her own body, but the husband does. Likewise, the husband does not have authority over his own body, but the wife does. Just real practically, what this means is that men, sometimes you have to die to yourself when you would like to, and she doesn't feel like it. And you die happily. Not begrudgingly, roll over in bed. You die to yourself. Christ died for you. You die happily to yourself. Because she has control over your body, not you. Ladies, there may be times where you're tired, not really in the mood. But you must die to your own desires. Right? Happily. And make love to your husband. Both of you seeking to consider the other person more important than yourself. Seeking to please the other person. Thinking more about them than you are yourself. And when we are both seeking to do that, things are going to work out well. It's when we go selfish that it goes bad. And so when we both, you know, from like my spouse has, she has control over my body. I have like, that's how we approach this. Not it's mine, it's me. No, no, no. Thinking about the other person. And while there's a lot of boundaries that we're kind of talking about here, I want to talk about one more. And I know we're going late, but I think this is important to say. Your standard of beauty is your spouse. Your standard of beauty is your spouse. Okay, God made one man. He made one woman. And as when God put it, he didn't come to Adam and say, do you want a blonde or a brunette? No, he just made Eve. Okay, he didn't come to Eve and say, do you want a lean and cut guy or you want a dad bod? Just, just made Adam. He didn't ask them if they wanted tall or short, light or heavy, pale or dark skin, long or short hair. He didn't permit them to develop their own standard of beauty. Instead, he gave them a spouse as their standard of beauty. And it's the same thing with us. Your standard of beauty is your spouse, not someone on a magazine cover. And with your spouse being your standard of beauty, that means your standard of beauty will change. It'll change. As your spouse shifts and change, changes over time. Because it, it is important to work out and care for our bodies. All right? Be in shape for the body type God gave you. 
whatever that body type is. Seek to be in shape, temple of the Holy Spirit, right? Worship the Lord in your body. So it's worship to God. It's a gift to your spouse. Seek to be in shape. And so that's important. But in the end, no matter how much you run, you exercise, you lift weights, age and gravity win. Always. Always. And so as one guy put it, when you marry, if your spouse is tall, you're into tall. If your spouse is skinny, you're into skinny. If your spouse is 20, you're into 20. When you're 60, you're no longer into 20, you're into 60. <laughs> and if your spouse used to be skinny, you were into skinny, but now you're into formerly skinny. We're to pour all our passion and pursuit of sexual pleasure into our spouses alone without comparing them to anyone else in a lustful way. Your standard of beauty is your spouse. And so finishing our sentence here, sex is a gift designed and created by God with particular purposes, two of which are pleasure and connection within appropriate boundaries. And finally, as an expression and response of worship. I mean, Colossians 3.17. And whatever you do in word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31 says, Whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. And so don't divorce sex from life. Okay, All of life is worship. Every bit of it, including sex. And so don't, don't worship sex. Don't worship lust. Don't worship pleasure. Worship God. And enjoy His gift of sex that He's given in marriage for pleasure and connection and procreation. And enjoy the friend that he's given you. Regardless of the way you feel about your spouse, like right now, regardless, they are a good gift, specifically chosen by God for you to change you, to make you more like him. To fulfill you and all those things as well. But he's more interested in your holiness than he is your happiness. Though if we pursue his holiness, he'll make us happy. It's a good gift. Sex and friendship. In marriage. And so treat your spouse that way. As a good gift. As worship to God. Right? For his glory. For your spouse's good. And for your own joy. Your spouse is a gift. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this time to talk candidly and openly about the gift of sex, the gift of friendship. And I pray that you would ever increasingly shape and reshape our minds in conformity with your word. That as it relates to this, these gifts that you've given, some of us, all of us, at bare minimum need touch-up paint. But Father, because of the proclivity of our hearts towards sexual sin, we constantly probably need to be priming over our hearts and minds and repainting our heart and our mind with Your Word as it relates to sex. Let us not pursue it as a God. Let us not. That, that is sinful and wrong. 
Let us not perceive it as gross. That is sinful and wrong. Let us receive it as a gift from you. For many purposes. Two of which include at least pleasure and connection. And so, Father, would you help our marriages here to be strengthened? Not just by this conversation we've had today, but communication and conflict resolution, as we talked about last week. Understanding what marriage is, understanding what family life is all about. And, Father, give people the boldness and courage to ask for help whether that's grabbing a book and reading it or talking in a community group asking for help as it relates to whatever is going on in their marriage or need to get a little counseling a little little help just a little a little more touch up paint help us to be bold as we want to pursue you with all of our heart and mind and strength that you might be glorified in our marriages as we paint right and good pictures of Christ and His church. In Christ's name, amen. And again, I just want to reiterate that we've all blown it and continue to. I'll blow it today and tomorrow and the next day as well. But Christ has grace. Where the ideal is lacking, grace abounds. And so there's no need to walk out of here today feeling beaten up, feeling I've blown up, gone too far. Christ could never possibly forgive me. Your sin is not bigger than the cross of Jesus Christ. Your sin is not more powerful than the grace of Jesus. So for every, as one one old Scottish preacher put it, for every one look at your sin, take nine looks at the cross of Christ and rejoice. He forgives. Let's stand in this worship.